Now hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute, And when his time of service was ended, he went to his house. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. You may be seated. Thanks so much, Pastor Eric. It's wonderful to be with you on this uh, last Sunday before Christmas and uh, have the opportunity to look at the Bible together. What is the biggest surprise you have ever had? Well, this weekend we are looking at how a godly man was surprised when he heard from God. You will know that in our Advent series uh, so far this year, we are looking at uh, the way each of the Gospels introduces the ministry of Jesus, and we're doing the same thing uh, this morning. 
So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each have their own theological take on the ministry of Jesus. This has actually long been recognized. In ancient times, the gospel authors were depicted by different characters, characters which are represented in our artwork for this Advent season. Matthew was often depicted by a man or an angel, Mark by a lion, Luke by a sacrificial animal, a bull, or as this morning, a lamb, and John, as we will see on Christmas Eve, by an eagle. These were attempts to communicate the four evangelists' distinct approach to the story of Jesus. So Matthew is particularly concerned to establish the authenticity of Jesus as a representative of the Old Testament Scriptures, a message from the Scriptures fulfilled in our own day, how the Old and the New Testament cohere together. Mark, as uh, we saw last week, well, Mark's more concerned to show how Jesus is really and truly someone that you actually can follow in the midst of the gritty reality of everyday life in our world. Luke, as we will see today, has a slightly different agenda, and I'm now going to introduce that for us. Luke's gospel is, formally speaking, anonymous. That is, we don't know for sure who wrote it. Uh, Very early manuscripts began to have appended to the beginning of the gospel account the name of Luke because early tradition was that it was written by Luke. This is for good reason. Luke is the first volume in a two-volume set of Christian origins. First the gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts. And Luke actually introduces both those two volumes with his prelude right before the passage we're looking at this morning, which describes how other gospel authors have written accounts or narratives or stories of the things that have been fulfilled among us, and how Luke is also doing the same and writing what he calls an orderly account. So Luke is particularly concerned with the history, the historical order of events. He's writing someone called Theophilus, whose identity is a mystery to us, but uh, who was Luke's patron in writing this two-volume account of Christian origins. The first four verses of the gospel are written then in very high-class literary Greek, suggesting that Luke intends his two-volume book to be read not only by the church, but also to have a wider audience into the literary class of his day. After the first four verses, Luke then switches to a Greek that is much more Hebraistic. That is, it reflects the style of the writings of the Old Testament accounts of history. So Luke's account is a history of Christian origins written to be accepted within the historical norms of his own day and is still today thought to be a very good historian, but then also written with a style of sacred writing from the Old Testament, so that it imitates that style as it's saying that what is happening is not only secular history, but the divine invasion of our world by the birthday of the Christ. Luke's two volumes are, roughly speaking, the same length, both Luke and Acts coming to nearly the same word count. 
see, each volume about the right size for one of the ancient scrolls that it would have originally been written to fill up. At the beginning of Acts, Luke tells us that he is picking up his story by referring to his first book and again to Theophilus, his patron, and saying that the first book was about all that Jesus began to do and teach, which, if you want a summary for Luke's gospel, is a wonderful summary for the gospel focuses on the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important we have this wider horizon of Acts, because together Luke and Acts fit one overall story and message. You see, it's usually thought that Luke was the Luke about whom we know not much from the Bible, but we do know was the companion of Paul described in Acts. And so Luke's gospel is often thought to represent more of the Apostle Paul's message and thoughts, though Luke also says he carefully researched everything from the beginning himself as a good historian. Luke's concern is with the fulfillment of Jesus as the true interpretation of the scriptures, but especially the message of salvation that Jesus brings. And in particular, Luke is concerned that this message of salvation is understood as coming to those who are lost. And so the key verse to summarize uh, Luke's uh, gospel is uh, Luke 19, verse 10, where Jesus says that the Son of Man, meaning Jesus himself, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. This message of salvation to the lost is dramatically depicted by Luke in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who go up to the temple to pray. Pharisee thinks he'll be accepted by God because he's followed the minute descriptions of his understanding of the law. And he's grateful that he's not like that tax collector over there. However, it is actually the tax collector who is most definitely lost, who cries out to God to have mercy on him, who Luke tells us that Jesus announced went home justified before God. Luke here using the key term for Paul's theology justification, indicating the connection to the wider ministry that he described in his second volume of Acts, where Paul preached a message of justification by faith, not by the works of the law. There is then, to use the phrasing of the title for this sermon this morning, a non-religious or non-legalistic salvation that is being brought into view by Jesus. The law, to use Paul's way of talking, cannot save. It convicts of our sin, and it can be a guide for our righteous living, of course. But those who are justified are those who know that they need to be saved and ask God for mercy. And it's this theme of salvation for the lost that Luke has as his axe that he grinds over and over again and then culminates at the end of the second volume with Paul at the heart of the Roman Empire, preaching a message of salvation, now going to all nations to the lost. All this then is important background to our passage this morning that we just heard read out for us. See, each of the gospel accounts begin in distinct ways for a distinct purpose. 
Mark begins in the wilderness, showing that the gospel is a message that begins in the wilderness. Matthew begins with the genealogy, showing that this Jesus is truly the Savior King for all who will repent and believe. Luke, however, begins with a very religious man in a very religious place. He begins with a priest, and he begins with the temple. All this is quite deliberate. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are good people. They are righteous before God. And what is more, they are walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. There's no hint from Luke that their childlessness has anything to do with their sin or any unrighteous act or feeling inside their heart. Oh, they're pious. They're following the law of God and they're blameless in so doing. But of course, so was Paul, who tells that of himself, he was, according to the law, blameless. And from this point of view, there's nothing at all wrong with Paul and nothing at all wrong with Zachariah or Elizabeth. They're doing everything right, feeling everything right. Zachariah was a priest. And he's about to fulfill the most honored religious duty of his entire life. No priest, because there were so many, it's estimated about 18,000. No priest was allowed to go up and offer sacrifice in the temple more than once in his life. He was religious, pious, godly, and at the pinnacle of his career, religiously speaking, yet the story here is how a godly man, religious in the sense of keeping all the works of the law blamelessly is actually surprised when his prayers are answered and he hears from God. In this sense, he's no different from many of us. As a staff team, we spend considerable time praying for the needs of God's people. We pray for healing. We pray for revival. We pray that in the days of Herod, with all sorts of political concerns and upheaval in our world, that God would step in and it not be the days of Herod anymore, but instead be the days of Elijah, when the word comes with fresh power, when many people are converted, when the nation in which we live becomes a thriving, full-on, bright beam of light to the nations, known as a nation for its godliness and friendliness to those who are godly. We pray for all these and many other things. And what would happen if we actually went to church and a hundred people were converted? We would be surprised. Our prayers were actually answered. Our people are being saved at Cottage Church. I have the privilege of meeting with uh, some of you who have come to know Christ recently. The brokenhearted are being healed. Similar privilege to meet with you in tears over work that God is doing in your lives. But Zachariah got an even bigger surprise than that. So the message this weekend is how a godly person was surprised when he heard from God. First then, let us look at this godly person. 
We have seen that both he and Elizabeth are righteous before God, verse 6. And they are also walking blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord. There is nothing wrong with them. They are godly righteous. But at the same time, they do have a problem. They have no child. And there's no likely prospect of them ever having a child because uh, Luke tells us they're both getting on a little bit in years. Verse 7. This setup is so familiar that one scholar remarks that never in the Bible is anyone ever described as being unable to have children without them soon being able to have a child. It reminds us of the story of Abraham and Sarah who were also godly and advanced in years and had no child. Now Christian parents who perhaps cannot yet have children Your prayers may well be answered with a child, but not always. But whether through that or adoption or discipleship of the next generation, the gospel still has the power to redeem each situation for the glory of God. Luke sets up the story writing in a sacred style to give us a sense of expectation. Something is going to happen. Zechariah goes to the temple. Each division or section of the priests allotted a particular time of duty or service. Each individual priest only allowed to perform the sacrifice that once in his life. An important moment in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life. A great honor chosen by lots. They randomize who was selected to avoid any suspicion of bias. He goes to the temple to burn incense. The fact that he was burning incense probably means it was the evening sacrifice, according to what we read about in the book of Daniel, though we don't know uh, for sure. As the priest goes in, the crowd outside uh, are uh, gathering to watch and be a part of things and participate, and they are praying. One rabbinic source tells us that they prayed a particular prayer as follows. May the merciful God enter the holy place and accept with favor the offering of his people. Little did they know that actually this time their prayer was going to be so dramatically answered. Here then is this godly man and his wife, childless through no fault of their own, religious and pious and righteous according to the law, with the people alongside them, praying with them according to the custom of the time, asking God to intervene. How surprising would it be when he actually did intervene. So we have this godly person first, and then we have second. The surprise he hears from God. And so from verse 11 uh, to the end of the passage, uh, Luke works out the surprise and describes its implications for us. First, uh, we have the words of the angel, uh, which uh, begins with, Do not fear. A standardized announcement whenever an angel appears in the Bible, which meets it, makes it immediately clear that angels are not cute, like cuddly beings with big smiles. 
but somewhat frightening. Messengers of the living God. If you or I ever see an angel, we will be glad to hear do not fear as the first words out of that angel's mouth. I can guarantee you. The angel tells uh, Zechariah that his prayers have been answered. Makes us wonder what Zechariah was praying. Well, perhaps he was praying for that child, for that is, in one sense, the answer to his prayers. Though for him to be praying specifically for a child seems a little unlikely to have been at least the only subject of his prayer, given that he was meant as a priest to be interceding for the needs of God's people in this special moment. But at any rate, whether for God's people and their salvation or for him and his wife to have a child, either way or both, his prayers are answered for a child will be given to him. He will be called John, which was a fairly typical name at the time and means God is gracious. This John will be great before the Lord and cause great joy. One of the ongoing themes throughout Luke's two-volume account is joy. Salvation for the lost and then joy. Now you see, we who are saved this morning already are to be the most joyful people. For we have the most about which to be joyful. This John will not drink alcohol. Uh, Some think uh, this means that he was a Nazarite, uh, like Samson in the Old Testament. That's certainly possible, but the Nazarite vow also included not becoming richly defiled by contact with dead bodies and not cutting your hair, and neither of those two things are here mentioned. At any rate, uh, John will be at least an ascetic That is, visibly and obviously denying himself certain things, legitimate activities like a glass of wine, in order to be known as set apart for a special work for God. He will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That is, he's announcing the end of the silence of God in the intertestamental period, and he's pointing God's people to the Messiah. John will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. It's a difficult phrase, that one. It probably means that John will bring about repentance. You see, fathers often need to be reminded of their duty to bring up their children in the instruction of their Lord Father's hearts need to be turned back to their kids. More important than their careers. And the disobedient often need to be reminded that the right thing, the just, is also the wise thing. That if you want to be great truly, not just as a quick flash that's soon gone but truly great you must be good at any rate John will we know have a ministry of calling people to repentance and so the surprise verse 18 Zechariah 
is surprised. How shall I know this? And then he complains about his age and the age of his wife. You know, come on, angel, don't you know anything about sort of basic, you know, I'm a little old, right? Now, at this point, those of us who are familiar with the Bible story will wonder why Zechariah is rebuked, apparently, for his question, whereas Mary, who asked a very similar question a little later, is not rebuked. How can we answer this? Two answers may be given. One is that Zechariah really should have known better. He was no longer young, he was a priest, he was in the temple. God appeared to him, this mature man of God, by sending an angel. He, of all people, should have known better than to disbelieve. The other answer is that while Mary was being asked to believe something that had never happened before, a virgin birth, Zechariah was being asked to believe something that he full well knew God had done before with Abraham and Sarah. Perhaps he never could quite believe that that had happened. He was about to find out that God was the God who could do miracles. Zechariah does not initially believe, and he's so surprised by this encounter that Gabriel, the angel who appears in Daniel, and Gabriel's name means man of God, rebukes him. I am Gabriel. You know, come on. Stand in the presence of God. I don't grovel there, I stand there. He has access to God. Been sent by God to bring this message to you, Zechariah. You priest. <laughs> what is more, this message is good news, Zechariah. You know, it may have been a surprise, I get that, but it's, it's a good surprise. Why is it, my dear friends, that we find it harder to believe good news than bad news? You whisper bad news, it spreads like wildfire. Journalism has a phrase, if it bleeds, it leads. We'll hear about bad news and we'll know all about it and we'll be likely to believe it. Where there's smoke, there's fire. But you shout good news. Sometimes it falls from the mouth like a feather. Well, Zachariah, because he doesn't believe, there will be a consequence. Zachariah's silence is um, discipline, punishment. Actually, it seems as if Zechariah is not only silent, but also deaf. Later in the story, when they try to communicate to Zechariah, they have to make signs to him, indicating that not only could he not speak, but he also could not hear. He's cut off from the world for a season. He is in shock. But actually, not only this was this, not only was this a rebuke to Zachariah's doubt, it is also a sign, too, in a sense, merciful, a merciful sign. 
Gabriel is also granting Zechariah the sign that he had requested, and it will also be a sign to the people outside. There's Zechariah, the priest in the temple, the godly man. And his silence and his deafness, well, they are a sign of the situation of God's people at that time. Before God intervened with John, the voice of one crying in the desert, make way for the Lord. May God grant us ears to hear God's good news and lips to speak it. To take the good news to our neighbors this Christmas. Invite them to the Christmas Eve service. Not be deaf or silent about the good news. Well, Zachariah goes out. He exits the temple. And then rather comically, can you see it? He can only make signs to the crowd who are waiting for him. I mean, usually you come out and say something profound, but he can't say anything. Actually, uh, priests were not meant to take a long time praying uh, when they went to the temple in case the crowd got worried that something uh, bad had happened. A tradition of short prayers, which is one that some well-meaning clerics today could do well to remember. As uh, D.L. Moody once put it, some men's prayers need to be cut short at either end and set on fire in the middle. But, of course, Luke loves to emphasize prayer, the importance of prayer, the means of prayer in bringing salvation to the lost. Well, the crowds, uh, those outside, when they see Zechariah, conclude what could be the only possible conclusion that Zechariah had seen the vision Actually, he had not just seen a vision in the sense of a dream, though. He had seen Gabriel, the messenger of God himself. A godly man surprised when he heard from God. When Zechariah's time of service had ended, the priest's division of which he was a part had fulfilled their section of duty. He goes back home, a home that we know was in the hill country, a town in Judah. Luke tells us as much a few verses later. Elizabeth is also silent, or at least she keeps herself hidden. Uh, She conceives, and she knows it's a blessing. Uh, She says, uh, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among uh, the people. Yes, the days of Herod are being replaced by the days of Elijah. It's not quite clear from Luke's account why Elizabeth hides herself. Perhaps... um, She also is astonished by the intervention of God, understandably enough given her advanced years, and she does not know what to say or what to do about it. Uh, Unlike Zechariah, she knows that God has done something to take away her approach. Uh, Luke tells us that. But not yet able to hear what Zechariah had heard from the angel. She's perplexed and therefore hides herself from having to give answers to questions that she does not have the answer to. Until Mary comes to visit her. 
and John, who the angel had said would be filled with the Spirit even in Elizabeth's womb, leaps with joy at the greeting of Mary. And then, Luke tells us, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit herself and says now, speaking now with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. A godly man and a godly woman are surprised when they hear from God. Well, such is the story. What does Luke want us to learn from it? Here are just a few suggestions. First, God really has come to seek and save the lost. Zachariah and Elizabeth are both lost in a sense. They were childless, dutiful, but were they joyful? God intervened in the middle of Zachariah's religious duty. You know, perhaps there'll be an unbelieving, liberal pastor out there this Christmas Eve reading the birth story and will suddenly be awakened to the truth that God is God. Perhaps that will happen to you. God intervenes in the middle of that religious duty He uses their barrenness as a fertile ground to replace the days of Herod with the days of Elijah. God really has come to seek and save the lost. You know, in a certain sense, the Christian religion is the one religion that is not a religion. For it's all by grace. He's come to seek and save the lost. Religious and non-religious. Second, I think uh, Luke is telling us that praying is important and uh, we are not to be surprised when our prayers are actually answered. Let us pray this Christmas that more people are saved in Wheaton than ever before. Let us pray that this Christmas God would speak to us And the days of Elijah, where the word has power and makes progress, will be days that we see. Third, I think uh, Luke is telling us that when God speaks, we should believe and not doubt. Now, I know some of what God says in his word is hard for rational men and women who've grown up with the heritage of the Enlightenment to believe that could there really be an incarnation? How can I understand that? And yet, when we grasp who God is, 
we know that God has worked powerfully before and can work powerfully again. I was shown uh, this week the Bible of uh, a very godly woman called Ruth Kearns who recently died. Every page in her Bible is marked with notes and insights from sermons and personal Bible studies. Give attention to God's word. Believe it. I think the fourth thing that Luke wants us to learn is that we are to speak the good news. Let us not tell people the bad news of the days of Herod this Christmas. Let us not talk around the dinner table about what is happening in politics or culture. Let's talk about the power of the gospel. Let's talk about the days of Elijah. Open our lips and declare his praise. What's the biggest surprise you ever had? For Zechariah, if you asked him that, he would say it was the time when he went to the temple and he heard from God. I'm praying that when we come back to church this Christmas Eve, we will be surprised and yet believing the good news of great joy for all the people. Let's pray together. Uh, perhaps like Zachariah and Elizabeth, there is a physical matter, a sickness, even a desire for a child, or some pain that we have been praying about for many years. And it's hard to believe that God would answer that prayer. Would you now in the silence take this moment to bring that need before God again? Trusting that in God's sovereignty he will intervene as he sees best for his glory and for your good. Whether with a physical healing or the patience to rise above pain and witness to the power of Jesus. Perhaps this morning God has spoken to you. We've opened up the Bible, the message from God, And it is uh, God's message that you have heard. Would you in the silence pray that God would grant you the faith to receive and rejoice.
Perhaps uh, you read uh, many news stories today and uh, think about what's happening in our culture or in the society. You, you, you hear about wars and rumors of wars and it just seems all bad news. Would you ask God to let you hear the good news of great joy? To rejoice, rejoice, for Emmanuel, God with us, shall come to us. Amen.